following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Last week, Sal and Heather Sanchez were up here, and we just talked about God's faithfulness in their life. And they kind of walked us through everything from family of origin to where they are today. And then we had a great follow-up conversation with them in Message Plus. Um, Tom Gordon is in the spotlight this morning. And I'm really looking forward to this, probably more than Tom is. Let me give you a background just a little bit. Uh, I met Tom quite a few years ago. He actually stopped in at Living God. He had written a children's book and got connected with Gary and Jan Bauer. Some of you will recognize that. And long story short, I think it's the first time we met each other. I think we were both thoroughly impressed, I think. I think it's fair to say. Uh, and then a number of years later, there's this organization called Student Statesmanship Institute that I've been a part of. His daughters all went through it. And I don't even know if our paths crossed. It, Brianne, our paths crossed at least. Um, and so that was more. And then when I started teaching at NMC, uh, Brianne was in my class, and that kind of reconnected uh, with Tom, and that's just built over the last few years. And I just want to say a couple things about Tom real quick. I appreciate Tom's honesty. I appreciate his introspection. He tries very hard to be honest about himself. Uh, I appreciate his commitment to discipleship. We'll talk a little bit this morning about kind of the rhythms of his life as he has tried to ever more fully surrender himself to Christ. Uh, I appreciate his love of community. They host game night. And one thing that has characterized their family for years as they open up their homes because they like connecting a, a place that feels like home, often with college students who are far from home. Uh, but I, I love the commitment to community. And those of you who have gotten to know them know this as well. So I'm going to stop um, introducing you now, Tom, because I want us to get into the heart of what we're talking about, and you're probably embarrassed by everything I've said already. Um, so Tom and his wife are in our small group. I've already heard Tom's testimony. Oh, I want to add one more thing. Tom is talking during this portion of the morning. At 11.15, the rest of his family will be in Message Plus. They're going to talk about Tom. I believe you'll be in the room. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I've, I'm also excited about this. I have lots of questions, um, probably embarrassing ones, but it won't be live streamed. Okay. Tom, let's just start at the beginning. Talk a little bit with us about um, your childhood, your family of origin. When you gave me notes, you had titled your backstory, How Satan Showed Up in Your Life. And the course of the morning, we're going to do the same thing we did with the Sanchez, we're going to talk about the faithfulness of God how God has been faithful to you as a means of hopefully giving encouragement to those of you in the audience. Uh, if you're not going through hard times, you will. If you're not wrestling with the way either people have sinned against you or sin in your own life that you're, that you're now experiencing the fallout, if you're not experiencing that now, you will. I'm hoping that what we cover this morning is, um, is life-giving and hope-giving to you as you see God's faithfulness in Tom's life. So, Tom... Um, start us off, man. It sounds daunting. How Satan showed up in your life very early on. All right. Well, first off, um, I'm accustomed to telling people what I'm thinking about, uh, but not so much telling them about me. So this is a very different space for me. Um, so yeah, early on, um, when it when it came to my relationship with my, my father, especially, it was a, a pretty rough one. 
And you can imagine how that translates to later in life, how you relate to God, God is the Father, all that kind of stuff. So that, that's the first bit of confusion. Um, but when it comes to my early, early uh, memories, I have one that I can possess, and that is my earliest memory. I'm two years old. I'm getting stung by a bee. So my earliest memory is pain. How do you like that? <laughs> um, but the, um, the rest of them, I don't, I don't remember anything from about age eight back. And I have to rely on my family for that. And one of the stories they tell is down at the beach, I'm two years old, and I've picked up some sand and thrown it at my mother right in her face. And uh, she tells me that my dad beat me nearly to death on the beach right there in front of God and everyone and that she came really close to leaving him. Um, and that, so that kind of gives you a sense of where, where I am. So that's a typical story that you're told by your family about? About my dad, yeah. About, okay. Yeah, and, and they would tell you, they've told me that I was the one he focused on more. Um, not really sure why that is, but, but I was kind of the, the focal point for him. Um, there was uh, abuse, obviously the, the violence, but there was also sexual abuse uh, coming from dad. And uh, I won't go into details. I mean, they're just as awful as you can imagine. Um, I will tell you about um, the, the day that came to an end. We were driving down to San Diego. My oldest brother was stationed on the USS Kitty Hawk, uh, which was at the time having its 18th birthday. And I was 15 years old. They've decommissioned the ship since then. But um, we're driving down. Uh, we're, we're going from the Central California coast down to San Diego. That's about a six hour drive. I'm 15 years old. My dad hated potty stops, hated them, right? I mean, he was. He was pretty self-focused. Um, and so within 45 minutes, I've already got to go. And I think, oh, don't say anything. It's only been 45 minutes. you know. So I wait for over an hour. And I, Dad, I got to go. He says nothing, does nothing. And I wait another hour. Dad, I got to go. <laughs> and nothing, no response. After six hours in the car, we get down there, and I may have a damaged bladder from this. I don't know. I mean, it was a very painful situation. And I can remember being just lividly angry. And uh, my dad had a routine that he would go through when he would start the, the sexual abuse. And he started that routine, and I used some pretty choice language, including F word and stuff like that. And that's when the abuse toward me ended. Um, so I just skipped from zero to 15 uh, in a really short amount of time. <laughs> Let's see, went to boot camp in the Navy. Um, I don't know if any of you have heard of Mike Warnicky. Yeah, okay. He tells a story about receiving Christ in a broom closet at boot camp in San Diego. Similar, I'd heard the story, I laughed about it, and now I'm in boot camp down in San Diego, and I'm really lonely, and I had this kind of vague sense of, who God might be. Um, my folks had sent us to Sunday school when we were really little. 
never wanted to be there. <laughs> I was going to ask yeah. if they also went to church, or was it something where they felt something good was offered, so they sent you, but it wasn't for them? I don't know if it was even something good offered. I think it was certainly babysitting for them. Um, but yeah, they never went. So, so that looked very inconsistent to me. Um, so I accepted Christ uh, in boot camp, but I wasn't led by anybody. Um, it was just kind of on my own, so I didn't know much what I was doing. Okay, I Go need ahead. to back up. Yeah. So do you feel like the information that you had that caused you to surrender your life to Christ, did that come from the years of being sent to church for babysitting? Or were there other people in your life between that time period that had shown you something about Christianity that either was, that was appealing to you in some fashion? Probably a collection of things. Um, I think the babysitting Sunday school thing probably did not hurt. Tom, can you hold your mic up by the top a little bit closer? I think we might be getting, there you go. Okay. There? Yep. Okay. Um, <clears throat> that did not hurt and probably helped. There was a Mrs. Puckett across the street who was part of that, and she was a sweet lady, and I remember that about her. Um, campus life in high school, I got semi-connected to that. And Does that go by a different name today? It might. Has anybody heard of campus life? Uh, I, it was a high school thing okay. back then. Yeah, George, I remember he was the, the leader, but he, he certainly uh, inculcated more Jesus stuff into me, right? So I probably had enough for that time. Well, uh, that's the wrong way to put it, but I made a commitment, not yeah. knowing what I was doing, right? <laughs> so out of boot camp, and we go to, in the Navy, you go to what's called A school. Sometimes you go to B school. Both my A and my B school were in Memphis, uh, Tennessee, uh, Millington, actually. So I went to train to become an anti-submarine warfare technician, which is a whole lot of syllables. Um, but while I was there, I met a guy, Jerry Lyons, and I, I'd been feeling alone. You know, I made this, this commitment, but uh, it's all by myself. Jerry was clearly a believer, and he took me to church. And I remember, um, I've got kind of a smart-alecky name for this church. It, it was some form of Baptist church. And, I, and this doesn't sound like a Baptist church, but these guys were really raucous. And I remember a guy got up, he was a visiting preacher, and he screamed at the congregation incoherently. His face turned red and his eyes are bugging out and people were just going berserk and dancing in the aisles and kicking their shoes off and I just kind of watched. But I wanted to believe, right? So the preacher uh, who, who didn't preach that day, uh, she took us out to lunch. Uh, I, I think we went to her house actually. And she asked if I'd ever been baptized. Um, yeah, and, and I said no. So she instructed me, um, when you're baptized, you will come out of the water, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and you will speak in tongues. And once again, I, I really wanted to believe. It did feel a little like I was being directed. Um, so it all went down, and I was baptized, and I came up out of the water, and there's 300 people out there looking at me. She's, a lot of expectation. A lot of expectation. And she kind of looks at me sideways, and I'm waiting for it to come, you know. There's nothing. <laughs> so, so I kind of mumbled some fumble-jumble nonsense, and the whole place went berserk. And essentially, I felt like in that experience that I was, I, I really was uh, drawn into dishonesty. And 
So, yeah. so this is fascinating to me, Tom, as part of your spiritual journey. And I, I know that you are skipping a lot of detail about your family of origin mm -hmm. because I've talked with you. Mm -hmm. You have used the phrase that you have the upbringing of an axe murderer. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is just a shorthand way of saying it was, there was a lot of trauma that um, you're not sharing this morning, which I think is an appropriate thing. Um, and so you go from that to the spiritual formation in your life it seems it, it seems interesting to me that you even stayed on the track because you were dropped off at church as babysitting. Mm -hmm. You had some other, I mean, it sounds like okay experiences in high school, but you weren't in a family that was committed to this at all. And some of your early first church experiences was very confusing and brought out in you a sense that maybe if you're going to be in church, it's a place where you have to play a game rather than be honest. And I, I'm, I've heard you say this before, Tom, but I'm still fascinated by this, that you continued in your pursuit of Christ in spite of a lot of things that I, th I think would be really disconcerting to a lot of people. Yeah, I don't know how to explain that one. Um, there is a little, a little piece that I don't know how to, how to give you, but when I was very young, I remember a sense of being special to someone, and I was, I was very young. We're talking three, four years old. And the someone I was special to wasn't my family. A supernatural sense that I think you would say now that yeah. you were special to someone that you now realize was God. I, I'm sure that's the case. At the time, I just had a sense that I was special to someone, and it clearly wasn't anybody in my family hmm. at the time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm, you know, my brothers and sisters get, a, get off the hook. You know, mom tried her best to take care of me. I, I was special to her, but this was different. This, this was a different kind of special. Yeah. So let's pick up after your church experience. Um, and I don't know how fast we should move this timeline, but after the Navy, at some point you got married. I don't remember if that was while you were in the Navy or afterwards. You lived in Arizona for a while. There's some other pieces to the puzzle here to put together. Yeah, so before I get married, um, I go off. Let's see, so I get out of the Navy. I've done about a year of active duty. I move right into the uh, 4x10 reserve program. So I was a Reagan Cold Warrior, right? That was back then. Um, and uh, let's see, so as I'm a reservist, I, um, let's see, I, I had a couple of jobs here and there, and then I moved to New Mexico, not Arizona, but New Mexico. I was pretty close. You were close, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, um, high desert, dry. Here. Yeah. Um, so I'm in New Mexico, and this is where uh, my son comes in uh, to the mix. So. I'd had this um, kind of oddball introduction to things spiritual and things Jesus, if you will. Um, while I'm out there in boot camp and for the next two years doing police work, I'm, I'm not really being, I'm not at all being obedient to the things that I know that I ought to. Um, and so um, one of the results of that is uh, that I have a son now who is, um, in his early 30s, living in Poland. I think he's watching right now, so hi, Chris. Um, and uh, I just want to make a quick comment about that. Um, I became party to the, 
to bringing into this world an eternal line of human souls, rather a line of eternal human souls. That's Simply a better by way to put it. Simply by having a child. And he, you know, I have grandkids now, and he's married. And where does that end? And wow, that, this really important stuff to think about. You know, um, look before you leap. Right? I mean, it's it's important. Um, so, so police work, um, formative. It didn't feel like it fit in here okay. today. Yep. Let's yeah. skip it then. Yeah. People can ask you questions later. Sure. Um, after the church experience that was a disconcerting one, did you find another kind of Christian community that became formative in a way that felt really healthy? I don't know if there was like um, college groups or groups on Navy or... Uh, once you were married, were there churches that you found? Or what did it look like to start to move into a place where you felt like the formation you were getting was really solid? Oh, boy. Okay. So <clears throat> I left uh, police work after a couple of years, went back home to the central coast of California. Amy had just arrived there, I think, maybe a week or two prior to my coming back there. When she had showed up, and she was going to work with college kids there, a uh, good friend, uh, Fred and Belinda Gray, they pulled her aside and said, hey, there's this friend of ours, Tom, that you know we need you to be praying for. And within a week, I was back there. So <laughs> that was kind of fortuitous. Um, was that a spiritual way of saying, I have this friend of Tom who really needs help? <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really needed help. <laughs> so um, Amy was working with a campus ministry um, alongside John Wood, and they had a very healthy uh, campus ministry going on, which I became a part of. I wasn't part of the campus. I wasn't taking classes at the time. But, uh, but yeah, I'd say that was a pretty healthy community. Okay. Yeah. And it's interesting to me, you're now involved in campus ministries um, and it sounds to, to me like a way of kind of paying it forward from what was given to you. Right. Um, I'm, I'm going to go to some things that you gave me in your notes, Tom. Just some stories, some snap, uh, snapshots from your life that had different formative things. And I'm not sure which ones to do because we're not going to get through all of them. But talk about hating God on I-40. Right. Okay. So... I had been out of police work for perhaps just a few months, not long, back home on the, on the California coast. I'd driven back out to Farmington um, briefly and was coming back home. I'm on the I-40, and I'm in my Suzuki Samurai. I don't know if you guys remember those, but it, the top was down. It was a hot day and just beautiful. But I was running through this list of all the reasons that I hated God. and. As I went through the list, something occurred to me that had never occurred to me before, that you can't hate what you don't believe in. And this was a huge eye-opening experience for me. And then it further occurred to me that what I believed in was pretty well defined. I wasn't hating Vishnu or Brahma or Zeus. I was hating the God of the Bible. And while this all sounds very negative, this was a huge relief for me because 
you know, we Christians, we tend to look at being lost as not knowing where you're going, going to heaven, going to hell. That's not what lost is. Lost is when you don't know where you are. And this was that moment that God revealed to me, you are here. This is where you are. You believe in me. You hate me. We got to work on that. Right? Um, and, and you believe in, in, in the God who created everything. I had my feet on something solid. It was a starting place. This was, this was the moment. So, so I had th these earlier experiences where I made a commitment to Christ, not really understanding. This was the moment where I got my feet on the ground, started walking forward, and with the exception of a couple of steps sideways, not backward, I've never gone back. That was the moment of obedience for me. I like how you phrased it in your notes. I started my walk of obedience with a God I hated. I still disliked him, but I trusted at this moment and ever since that he and not I had an accurate grasp on reality and that he would come through. Right. Yeah, that, that was pretty much where I, isn't, where I was. And I think that kind of describes me ever since. I, I've, I've, I'm smart enough to realize that I don't know half the stuff I thought I knew. And as I get older, it's, the list is going to get bigger, right? So he's big. He's God. I believe in him. That's enough. He knows. I don't. So I'll trust him. Your next story is called Atheists and Bunny Rabbits, which I just want to hear about because of the title. <laughs> um, and you, it, it, I could tell from your notes you can have something to do with a fog in your life of some sort that lifts. Yeah, so talk yeah. about Atheists and Bunny Rabbits. So Amy and I have been married for... Three and a half, four years. Rachel is an infant, and and so I'm still I'm still struggling with you know uh, having admitted that I that I hated God. I wasn't in that space anymore. But I I still you know we had a really tough relationship. I mean, picture a movie where the dad and the son aren't getting along. You know, they love each other. That's me, right? That was us. And uh, pain just really troubled me. So. One day, it all came to a head. Uh, Rachel, uh, I don't know, she must have been three, four months old, and I'm trying to stick this rubber nipple in her face. Amy's working, nowhere to be found, you know, and I mean, she's, just not, she's just not available. And this was my reality, day in and day out. I was going to school uh, to become a historian, and I've got to take care of this kid when, when she's not around. Well, she's screaming like her life is at an end. And to me, I looked at this little child and I saw real suffering. I mean, she really seemed terrified. You know, what am I trying to do to her with this thing? You know, And it went on for days and days. And it was the thing that kind of made me snap. But there was a collection of things. It was pain generally in the world that was really troubling me. Was this part of the source of your hatred of God or your anger at God? No. Okay, never mind that question. I keep going. I, I, I'm not sure about that. Okay. It, it, maybe, maybe there's just a big bucket of stuff, right? And that was one of the things swirling around in there. But you guys, some of you uh, who are old like Anthony and I might remember a, a case. Susan Smith, back in the early 1990s, she strapped her two boys into a, in their car seats and rolled them into a lake and drowned them blamed it on an imaginary thug, right? And it all came out later. Well, 
that had also just happened, and I was upset about that, and just all of a sudden, I'm, oh, I'm just really uh, tense about all this. So I get up in front of my congregation, and uh, that was not really unusual for me. Uh, we, you know, the young men in that group served a lot, and so I just got up and to ask for prayer, and they had just no idea what was coming, and I told them, um, and here I am married to one of the campus ministers, right? Um, you know, I'm just, my faith is hanging by a thread, and all I've got left is that, that I can ask you guys to pray for me. And they were just bowled over, right? So I hadn't done this to get attention, but I did notice for the next couple of weeks that there was no knock on the door, the phone didn't ring, my church went totally silent. And, and the disappointment was kind of growing in me, and that that was not what I was, I wasn't looking for that. I was looking for their prayers. And no doubt they were praying for me. And I think I scared the life out of them, really. I just think I, I terrified them. One day the phone rings, and here's this kid. He's about my age. Amy, do you remember his name? Sam. That's right, it was Sam. He calls and says, my name is Sam. You don't know me, but, um, and, and I don't really believe in God. I'm actually an atheist, but I was there that Sunday when you got up and, and talked, and I just wanted to see if you're okay. Now let that sink in for a minute. I'm thinking, my church just did not show up at all. And this visiting atheist reached out to me. Oh, I was so mad. <laughs> so mad. Sam and I became friends. Um, and he was a weirdo. Um, I <laughs> I liked him a lot, but one of the things he loved doing was he'd go out in the middle of the woods, miles away, he'd strip down and run naked through the woods for days. That's, that's what he would do. <laughs> but eventually, I never went with him. <laughs> we only had one or two interactions, and eventually he became a believer. Uh, I, I don't think I was a part of that uh, process, but, but it, it struck me really odd that this is the guy that reached out to me. Well, I'm in the grocery store. It's now been two, three weeks since my little announcement, and here's Wanda Teehee over in the frozen section, and uh, there's no way she's not going to see me, and so she very awkwardly uh, comes over to say hello, and, and she's scared to death, the, the poor woman. This is someone from church? She's, she's from church. She was there that day, right? And so Wanda had become a nurse to take care of her husband, John, who was terribly ill. And she said, you know, Tom, um, I know God never abandoned us, um, and I don't think he's going to abandon you. And, you know, kudos for her for having the guts. Of course, I'm pulling no punches, right? And I just said to her, I said, so what does it look like when God abandons you? Does it look like two kids getting strapped into their car seats and rolled into a lake? Is that what it looks like? She did not know what to say. <laughs> and I felt terrible for her later. Um, <laughs> but that's the space I was in. And I was going to be honest with that space. I wasn't going to back away from it and pretend that it wasn't as bad as it was. It, and it lasted for two years. Mm. It's a long, long haul. That's just the crisis part. Oh, no, I got the atheist down. Okay, so bunny rabbits. Um, so um, after two years of this, and I'm... I'm, I'm really struggling. This is the time, by the way, where I, I'm in school to become a historian, and I decide to add philosophy as a double major. 
and the people at church who, who knew me. That was a purely economic decision, right? Purely, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to work at Starbucks, you know. So, <laughs> so they said, the people who knew me, they, they would say, um, don't do that, Tom. That'll wreck your faith. You're looking at a man with wrecked faith. What are you talking about? God used philosophy to, to rescue my faith in many regards because history, what I was studying, was, was more of the Susan Smith rolling you know, kids into lakes. It was this war and that war and that horrendous thing. And philosophy taught me how to think. Right, so that's kind of a side story. Um, so we go down to visit Ron Smith. Is that right, Sue? Ron Smith in Santa Barbara. He was a preacher down there, and a friend of ours. So it's about two hours away, and we're talking. And I'm kind of pouring out. You know, I really want to move through this, but I, I, I have to be honest in this. I'm not just going to pretend it's not there. You know. So, so I kind of pour out what I knew to pour out, and he takes me out in the backyard. And he's got this really bizarre bunny hutch. It's like a chain link fence, goes down underground in a big cube, probably eight by eight, and it goes down quite a ways. So the bunnies can dig down in holes and stuff and not get out. There are two rabbits out there, a black one and a white one. And um, one of them, they, they both saw us coming. One of them went tearing down the hole and the other one came up to the fence and wiggling his nose expectantly. You know? I didn't see that. Can you do that again? Yeah, I can. Okay. <laughs> and it was really interesting. Uh, Ron said, you know, it's interesting. Um, you and I are like these rabbits, you know. They don't know what I'm going to do any given day when I come out here. Uh, I might knock them both on the head and have them for supper, right? Um, but I've treated them both the same. And one of them runs down the hole in terror, and the other one comes up uh, to the fence based on what I've what I've done in the past for him. The other one is concerned about what I might do to him. But they have these two different reactions, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's interesting, right? And, and then he asked me, so Tom, when you've been through hard times in your life, personal hard times, and I had to think through, and there, there have been some hard ones, what has been the result of that? And I said, well, I became a stronger person, a better person? He says, are you angry at God for that? And this might get to your question. No, I'm not. You're not angry at God for was, being a stronger person. I, I was not angry at God for the harshness in my own life up to that time. Hmm. I'd gotten past all that, right? I was past that stuff. I still had a very difficult relationship with God. I was angry with him on the behalf of those two boys that rolled into the lake, right? my daughter who wouldn't take a bottle from me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's who I was angry about. And so Ron said, so you would deny all those people the same opportunity to grow that you've had? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> and, and this two-year fog lifted. So... Rick, it, it sounds like it's another version of, so I'm going to go back to your first story, that how Satan showed up, that things that Satan intends for ill, God has the ability to use mm -hmm. to f make something good. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to skip around in your notes, Tom. Let's talk a little bit about your reconciliation with your dad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was really something. So... My dad, we finally, we confronted him right before I left for uh, police academy. 
and um, he had done some horrible things to some twin boys that, that he was fostering. Um, so he was actually a foster parent, but that's not to, to draw higher against foster parents. He got, he got through the system somehow. But um, he'd hurt one of them very badly and shown up in the driveway of my sister's house screaming, and we all realized, okay, we've got to do something. So the five of us kids, um, my two older brothers, my older sister, my younger sister, we got together, and it was the weirdest thing. So here I am, 21 years old, and most of them are a little older than me. My younger sister is just a two years younger. And we all had this realization at that moment that the same sorts of things had happened to all of us, and none of us knew it. And, it, and I think none of us were surprised by it, but uh, we decided, okay, you gotta protect kids. So we confronted him at his house, and um, he uh, talked about going to get a gun. We called the police, they sent the SWAT team. It was awful. <laughs> Um, he ended up being uh, forcibly retired uh, from his job. He was in uh, a real high-level uh, defense ministry stuff as a contractor, and so he was forcibly retired. And for 30 years, he was essentially out of my life, just gone, right? So a lot takes place in 30 years. Um, so I have these other adventures that we've, some we've talked about and many we haven't. But, and, and Chris comes along, right? And, and so now, now we're going back just a few years because uh, my grandchildren are only, what, a couple of years old and, and, and three or four. Um, so Chris gets a hold of me um, to let me know that I'm going to be a grandpa. It was really interesting. About the same time, my two sisters had gone, um, they just, just on a whim said, let's go find dad. It's been 30 years, let's go find dad. <laughs> so they do, and my sisters are like that. Um, you, you'd love them. Um, but they get in the car and they drive up north to the last known location and they start checking nursing homes and stuff and they find him. He's in there dying of a kidney ailment. Um, and so they called me, and I think it was either a day before or a day after I'd heard from Chris that, um, that I was going to be a grandpa. And so, oh, no, that's not, that's not right. I think Livia had just been born, actually. So I had just become a grandpa, and I had a picture. So I fly out there, and here it's been 30 years since I have seen my dad. My son is 30 years old. <laughs> Both of us largely dadless, if you will. And here I have two days to spend with my dad trying to work things out. And, and, uh, and it was a really interesting situation. My, my dad, when I first walked through the door, he's, his eyes just lit up. And he said, now that's what a Gordon should look like, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, but he, he was almost worshipful of my presence. And at one point, uh, you know, I'm telling him about uh, Christ, and he says, yeah, I don't know about all that, son, but I'm sure you're going to get it all figured out for me. Oh, pressure. <laughs> um, 
So we had those two days together, and I, I really believe that was not so much about getting him saved as it was God reaching into my life and healing a whole bunch of stuff. I got to be with my dad for two days, and uh, we were reconciled, as it were. Um, he, he tried to wiggle out of things, and I, you know, he, and he was actually trying to bring stuff up in an oblique way and say, did it happen like this? And I'd say, no, Dad, it happened like this. And then I'd go through gruesome detail. And he'd say, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> And then he'd say, ask about something else. Um, did it happen like this? And I'd say, no, it happened like this, Dad. And so we got all of it cleared out, uh, and then he was dead two weeks later. Mm. So, so that's why I wrote it as a 30 by 30 reconciliation. So it was like Dad, <clears throat> Tom, and Chris, you know, 30 years apart, and I'm right in the middle, all being reconciled. And I got to show him a picture of his, his at the time, his, oh, was it only? I think only great grandchild. Hmm. Yeah. So. You wrote here that a lesson you took away from that was that God did this for me because He loves me. What do you mean by that? Well, I don't know that I can add much to that. Um, I think that was not so much about my dad as it was about me. Okay. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. Um, Tom, for the sake of time, we're going to skip the entire thing about you having a brain tumor. <laughs> Um, and learning what it means to be a human being rather than a human doing. <laughs> Even though that's a huge part of your life, we're just at the point where I, I need to have a couple summary things here. In fact, you had some excellent stories about how your children were spiritually formative in your life um, as you recognized not only that the goodness of the gifts that God gives you in terms of the, your family, um, but also how your children in some ways caused you to think much more deeply about life and recognize the role that God gave you in their life. And perhaps we can bring that up a little bit in Message Plus. There's two questions you ended your notes with, and I want to end our morning with this. The first question is this. Um, you wrote in your notes, what motivates me now? What do I live for? And considering the context of all your life, and I think you've done a nice job even with brief overviews of of uh, explaining not just hard things that formed you, but then good things and ways that God has met you and brought healing, et cetera. Uh, maybe I'll ask you this way, Tom. Have you arrived now? If you want to see, this might be an old version of notes. Um, uh, and if, if you don't want to answer this question because we talked about it Thursday and we've forgotten it since then, I'll move on to my other one. Have I arrived? Uh, <laughs> uh, so, okay. Um, so we're going on the fly here. Work with us. Anthony really liked what I wrote, so I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> what motivates me now? What do I live for? So honestly, I live for me. The more time that passes as I look to true north, the less I see all of you as accessories to my life, the more I make decisions with your best interest in mind, sometimes even against my own perceived self-interest. It's during these moments that I begin to smell the aroma of Christ emanating from my own person. And I, I know from talking with you, Tom, that a big part of your life was that you lived for you. That was the point. Yeah. And that as a Christian in whom God is working, that is still a present struggle. But you're learning what it looks like to 
um, discipline your life and serve with service to Christ such that transformation slowly happens. Right. And that's, if I understand you correctly, a lot of that is from being purposeful in serving others. Well, it's, it's purposeful in serving others, but it's also purposeful in exploring the spiritual disciplines. And when I say that, that sounds like something you pull off of a shelf and open the lid and smell formaldehyde. I'm not talking about a dead thing, right? I mean, really applying discipline in my life, right? Uh, I'm going to end with this. You, you've talked about, when you and I have talked about learning what it means that you're a subset of all people. Yes. And that um, ideas you've had as you've viewed the world, how transformative has it been for you to realize, oh, but these apply to me individually. Right. So, and this is a good place to stop for now because um, this may be one of the most profound things that, that I believe the Lord has revealed to me. We all have an inner narrative, right, uh, where we're talking to each other. And to me, that narrative, until just a couple of years ago, really, went something like this. Gordon, you blankety-blank, so-and-so, what's it, doodle-doodle, right? And we would call that a negative voice. A negative voice, yeah. That was my inner narrative. And if you can relate to that, um, I think all of you probably can uh, at some level. It occurred to me, you know, throughout the Bible, we are told to treat all people a certain way. It comes in different forms, right? Well, I am a subset of all people, right? I know that if I were to go to uh, Corbin, right, and, and talk to him the way that I talk to myself, I know God would not approve of that. I am a subset of all people. God does not approve of me talking to myself that way, Right? Really, let that sink in because that's not just spiritual mumbo-jumbo. That's deep reality, right? And this was the moment that I really understood what self-love looked like. I could love myself without being narcissistic simply by treating myself the way I treat all of you, right? So... It's almost, we, we talk a lot about love your neighbor as you love yourself, but there's something to be said for loving yourself as you would show Christ's love to your neighbor. Right, right. Okay. Well, thanks, Tom. Thank you. Um, just because I have talked with Tom before, we just, we're scratching the surface. There's a lot of depth there and a lot more things. I would just encourage you, if something Tom talked about this morning has resonated with you, maybe there's something in your life or there's something in your history um, where things he's experienced have been things you've experienced, I would encourage you to follow up with Tom. He's open for that. I think I told you he likes community. Um, and I appreciate, Tom, you modeling, being forthright about that. And I hope that we give you permission to be honest and forthright with him. And if it's not, Tom, if, if it's still, if it unsettles something within you, um, find someone else where you can talk honestly about things that are still in your life that are in need of God's healing and God's direction. And I, I think that's a combination of the Holy Spirit at work in our life, God's word at work in our life, but also God's people around us being part of that journey. 
Uh, after the service, we have one class going, and that's Message Plus. So um, all of the Gordons will be there. We're going to talk a bit more with Tom's family. And um, Tom, you won't be on the spotlight anymore, but I, I suspect I may shine it briefly on you at times. So um, I would encourage you to join us. And it's about 8 after 11, so figuring about 10 minutes or so. So 20 after, we'll, we'll try to get that going. So, Lord, I, I'm grateful uh, that you're a God who meets us where we are. I don't know everyone's story in this room, but I do know that everyone's story has, has times of pain, of frustration, of disillusionment, of anger, of doubt. We, we have those kinds of burdens that we bear in this life. Uh, I pray, Lord, that part of our experience with you, because you offer so much to us through Christ, I pray that part of our experience is increasingly understanding what it means that the salvation you offer us is not just a moment, but this, uh, the, the redemption, the healing, the hope, the life that you offer, uh, a lot of that involves God moving into areas of our life where we think, where we know we're broken and we think we might be broken beyond repair, but it turns out God is bigger than that. So, Lord, I, I pray that we become a people whose stories are increasingly characterized by the hope of Christ in us. And while we long for the perfection that awaits us on the other side of this life, we love what you bring to us now. Uh, you're a good father. Thank you for letting us be your children. Pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.